Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. I'm Jessica Millar, PGY5 General Surgery Resident at the University of Michigan and one of the Behind the Knife Education Fellows. And it's that time of year again when medical students are carefully crafting their residency applications. Last year, we created our Dominate the Match series where we discussed the application process, personal statements, interviewing tips, especially virtually, and ranking. We received amazing feedback from it, and to help our wonderful medical student listeners navigating the process this year, we're here to discuss all of the changes and updates to the process for the 2024 application cycle. While we will be primarily focusing on the application cycle as it relates to general surgery residency, we hope medical students applying to other surgical specialties will find some useful information and tips as well. Okay, that's enough for me. Let me introduce our wonderful guest for today's episode, Dr. David Hughes. Dr. Hughes is an endocrine surgeon and the residency program director at the University of Michigan. And thank you so much for being here again to offer up all of your expertise. Thanks for having me back. All right. So let's just start with the important dates for this year's application cycle. Great. So the ERAS application officially starts on June 7th, uh, which is obviously uh, already happened. Um, that's when uh, uh, people can open up ERAS and start to uh, entering their information. Uh, residency applicants can start putting uh, stuff on their My ERAS applications on September 6th of 2023 at 9 a.m. in the morning. Uh, the deadline to register for the match, which is the completely separate platform through the NM NMRP, is uh, September 15th. So you need to make sure that you sign up both for ERAS and for the match uh, separately. Residency programs can start reviewing ERAS applications on September 27th. Uh, this is a really important date because most programs will start to review those immediately on September 27th uh, because we start to be on the clock uh, for reviewing those applications so we can send out uh, interview invitations uh, for the uh, interview cycle. The NN NMRP rank list opens for applicants for programs on February 1st. Uh, that's after the majority of interviews are done during November, December, and January. The rank list deadline for both programs and applicants is February 28th. On March 11th, uh, the match results will be sent to applicants, programs, and their medical schools. Uh, this is just confirmation of a match. Applicants and programs will not know who matched where until the end of match week, uh, which is on March 17th, which is the official match day across the nation. There is the Supplemental Offer and Acceptance Program, which is also called the SOAP. Uh, that happens between March 11th and March 15th. Uh, these are for people that didn't match to the initial match and uh, essentially scramble into a position um, during that week. 
Yeah, and don't worry if you missed all of those dates, we'll be sure to include them in our show notes as well. So let's move on to the actual application itself, starting with the supplemental application. Now, this is something that was optional in the past. It was kind of a pilot thing, but now it seems to be more standardized or uh, just part of the regular ERAS application. Can you talk a little bit about what the supplemental application is? Right. So there's a the standard ERAS application includes uh, a lot of demographic information about uh, yourself as an applicant, uh, your medical school information. Uh, it includes all the different experiences you had. Uh, research publications, and that application has been pretty standardized for many, many years. Uh, starting about uh, two years ago, ERAS opened up a supplemental application. Uh, sublab- supplemental application was in addition to the standard ERAS, but now this year it's really all wrapped into one under the My ERAS application. So no longer are there two separate applications. There's just one application that has now integrated everything that used to be part of the supplemental uh, application. So for the new ERAS application, there are new things uh, this year, which includes your experiences section. Uh, There's an impactful experience section, uh, geographic preferences, and program signals. What the students can include for their selected experiences, you can pick 10 experiences that communicate who you think you are and what shows is most important to you as an applicant. You can select the setting of this experience, the focus area of the experience, and the key characteristics of each of those to help you categorize them. Programs will then be allowed to use these categorizations to filter applications if they're very uh, interested in research, community service, global health. uh, They can use those to hone in uh, that part of your application. In addition to the 10 selected experiences, you can highlight three of those as being your most meaningful experience. And the three that you select, you can write a 300-character essay uh, about the experience to tell you tell the programs why it was meaningful uh, or, or how it influenced you. So I guess one of my questions is the ERAS application used to have 10 experiences. On the supplemental, are these the same 10 experiences? Are they different? And also for those most meaningful experiences, is it okay to have them, say, overlap or double dip, meaning you include them in your 10 top experiences, but then also highlight them as like your key or most important experiences? Right. Those, those most meaningful experiences are three of the 10. So it's not like three additional ones. You select three of the 10 you think uh, most highlights your uh, kind of ability as a future surgeon, a future uh, surgery resident, things that most impacted your your kind of career path up to that point. Mm-hmm. Now, something else you mentioned is preference signaling. Again, this isn't something that's totally new. It's been around now for a few years, but we still get a lot of questions about how to use them most wisely and most effectively. So at least for general surgery, how many signals are applicants going to be receiving this year? Right. For general surgery, there's five signals that students can use to signal programs that they're most interested in. People have used these all kinds of different ways. Uh, There's a lot of discussion about a strategy to use these signals. Should you use them for programs that you think you're most highly competitive for? Should you uh, uh, send those programs you're most interested in? Uh, Should you send them to programs you think are reaches for you? Um, There's a lot of thought that goes into it. Um, I personally think you should use the signals to uh, signal the programs you're, you're most interested in. Don't try to figure out how to game the system or how to use the signals to your advantage. Really just communicate to the programs that you think are the best fit for you 
and let them know that you're really interested in those programs. Mm -hmm. Now, most students are going to be applying to more than five programs, though. And so even they may be interested in 10 or even 15, but they only have five signals. What's a program going to think if they don't get a signal from them? The way the programs see the signals is they only see applicants that have signaled them. They don't know if you signaled other programs or if you just elected out of the sing uh, signaling completely. So I wouldn't worry that a program that does not see a signal from you as an applicant uh, will think you're less interested. Most programs use the signals to help determine uh, uh, tiebreakers. So it's if they're looking at two applications that are very, very similar in their quality and the fit for their program, uh, they may uh, use signals to select one over the other to interview. ERAS also recommends that programs only use signals for interviewing purposes, that they don't use the signals after that phase, especially they shouldn't use the signals to help generate the rank list uh, for the match. That's That was actually going to be my next question, so thanks for getting to that. The other thing, too, is geographic preferences. Students have the ability to list if there's a certain area of the country or even types of programs they'd like to be a part of. How do you think students should use that if they truly do have geographic preferences or even if they don't have geographic preferences, is it going to hurt them or help them in any way? Yeah. This is uh, something that's been around now for two years in the general surgery application. Um, and there's nine different, different geographic areas that students can select. You can select up to three of the nine geographic areas. You can just say you have no preference at all in terms of geographic areas, or you could just completely opt out and leave nothing uh, in that particular area. What I generally recommend is if that app, if applicants have a geographic area that they're uh, very tied to for many different reasons, um, that they do uh, indicate that geographic preference to programs. On the program side of things, the programs will only see if applicants have either chosen no geographic preference or have signaled their geographic location as a preference for this student. They will not see if the student has selected a different geographic area that's outside of the program's area. Oh, so that's interesting. So let's say I were in Michigan, maybe I would like to stay in the Midwest, and I put that as a signal, but I also apply to a program in California. Will the program in California see that I preferred the Midwest? They will not. Oh, interesting. Only if you selected a geographic area that is where the program is, or if you selected no preference. Nice. Now let's talk about interview release date. Again, something not totally new, but I think there's a lot of us that still have that, uh, for lack of a better word, PTSD from being glued yeah. to our phones during this time after applications are submitted and while interviews are kind of being released where you're tied to your phone and you have minutes practically to answer emails before interview spots are filled up. So what did programs do last year and what are they doing this year to kind of help mitigate that? Uh, we, we have heard that feedback, and uh, certainly that's not a good way uh, to go through the first couple weeks of, of the uh, interview season uh, being glued to your phone and feel like you have to uh, answer that email immediately before they move on to the next applicant. So the majority of programs last year agreed to a common interview uh, release window, uh, which for the coming year uh, starts on October 26th, which is a Tuesday, and runs for a week until the following Tuesday, October 31st. The idea here is that programs will uh, send out their first rounds of invitations uh, during that window. Uh, they will give applicants 48 hours to respond to that invitation uh, before they move on to the next person on their uh, application list and offer them an interview. 
the majority of programs, I think, adhere to this window. Um, it's not a requirement. Uh, it's just a recommendation from the Association of Program Directors in, in Surgery. Um, last year, I think the majority of programs didn't adhere to this. Um, and the feedback that we got uh, was that it was much more palatable for the applicants. I um, gave them 48 hours to kind of gather up all their different invitations, uh, help to do some planning, and then um, con help them confirm that they would uh, uh, accept the interview invite. So one question logistically. So let's say I'm an applicant and that common release date passes and I get 10 or 15 interviews, but I didn't hear back from some schools or I didn't get offers from other programs. Um, the 48 hours pass. How soon can I expect uh, maybe second round of interview invites? And are those same thing going to be released all in one date or will those kind of come in at sporadic intervals? Right. I think most of the interview invitations that happen after that window uh, will probably be interview slots that have opened up because some of the they, somebody the program offered an interview uh, to has canceled. Um, so those may uh, continue to trickle in kind of throughout the entire interview season, but I wouldn't necessarily uh, counsel applicants to uh, hold out for a lot of those uh, to, to come through. Uh, I think most applicants that have accepted their interview during that first window will, will go ahead and interview at that program and the slot's not particularly going to open up. Uh, one thing the programs have also uh, committed to is that they would only offer the number of interview slots that they had available. So there's none of this where they offer a hundred people uh, an interview uh, and then only have 70 spots and only only give those interviews to the first 70 people that uh, kind of respond to the invitation. Makes sense. Seems a lot nicer. Yeah. And I, I think you mentioned this already, but are interviews going to be mostly virtual or in-person this year, or is it very program-dependent? Uh, there is a recommendation that uh, programs do virtual interviews. Uh, there is, again, no national requirements or guideline, so you may see programs fall on either side of this. Uh, but I do think the majority of programs will still do virtual interviews. Uh, there's a little bit of a talk about uh, in-person second looks. These bring up some issues with uh, availability, making it uh, an equal opportunity for all the different applicants. Uh, certainly, uh, geographic location compared to where the program is can play a lot of lot uh, into this. So most programs that um, are considering second looks uh, want to basically completely uh, separate this from the generation of their own rank list. So I think a majority of programs, if they do offer second looks, are going to submit their finalized rank list to the NRMP. Um, so that way, if an applicant comes, that's purely for the applicant's uh, decision-making process, and it makes no difference to the program's finalized rank list. Uh, this would allow the applicants to go to these second looks and help modify their own rank list before the deadline on uh, fe February 28th. I like that a lot. And that way then applicants don't feel that it's optional, but not optional kind of pressure that oftentimes comes with that. If you truly know that like, nope, their rank list is, is certified and me coming or not coming isn't going to affect that. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. 
But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. We talked about interview date releases, virtual interviews versus in-person, as well as the second looks. A lot of that, though, like we mentioned, is going to vary a little bit by program. So how will you know if programs you apply to are going to do, say, in-person or virtual or common release date or not? Yeah. Most programs will have a, a recruitment website or a residency uh, interview website uh, that should have most of the information that you you uh, kind of looking for. So I'd encourage applicants when they're shopping around for programs, make sure you go to the program website uh, to see what the different requirements are. Uh, some programs do have additional requirements above and beyond ERAS. Um, so make sure you check those out before you uh, apply to a program. I think one thing that more and more programs are moving towards is this holistic review of applications and really looking at the experiences and letters of recommendation to really get a better picture of an applicant. But metrics such as step one and step two and GPAs are still kind of a part of the application. And something that's going to be definitely it was new last year, but it will be more solidified this year is the fact that step one is pass fail. Pretty much every applicant will only have a pass fail step one score. So how does that then reflect on, say, their step two score? Is it really important that they have it? Is it more weighted this year because of that? Um, I think taking step two uh, before um, the interviews is important. Taking step two even before you finalize your ERAS application is probably more important uh, now than it was when step one was a scored exam. Check out a program's website. They may indicate that they require step two uh, to uh, review applications. But, but you're right, um, because step two is a scored exam, it does increase its importance uh, compared to step one, which is now pass fail. Now, moving on to the other parts of the application, though, so step two being one objective measurement, a lot of the other things are these, you know, your experiences and your letters of recommendation. Let's talk a little bit about the experiences section, because I know that that can oftentimes be a really kind of daunting task for students as they're picking, well, what are my most important experiences and what are programs going to want to see? And so what type of experiences should students list on their application? And to kind of add like a sub question to that, I get asked this a lot. Do pre-med activities also count? You know, if they had a really meaningful experience, granted it wasn't within the past four or however many years they've been in med school, can they still include those as their experiences? Yeah, I would, I would counsel applicants to really look at their own CV and in their own minds figure out what is most important and impactful in that CV as it relates to their professional career. Um, and since most people are, are looking to be surgeons, um, they should at least have some uh, relevance to your career path to either choosing surgery, how you develop yourself as a physician during medical school, a little bit less so uh, during your undergraduate career. Certainly, if there was something very impactful for you or it was a, uh, something that really kind of formed who you are during your undergraduate career, uh, you could certainly use one of those 10 experiences uh, to highlight that. Uh, but I think most program directors are looking for how you would uh, uh, function as a surgery resident uh, as opposed to uh, kind of your undergraduate career. Uh, you have 10 options. Uh, 10 <laughs> options does seem like a lot. 
Um, I think the ability to select three of those is the most impactful, uh, is a important decision to make. Applicants could choose uh, scientific research. They could choose global health experiences. They could choose community involvement, especially when it relates to uh, kind of physician services. There's many, many uh, different options for that, uh, but really kind of focus it in on um, kind of your career journey as a physician. And like you mentioned, 10 seems like a lot, but when you're actually then starting to select, sometimes students might have, say, multiple research experiences or multiple volunteer experiences, and those can start to add up fairly quickly. Is it okay to lump some of those experiences together? I think that would be a good idea, um, start, especially into the bigger bins, things like research, global health, uh, community involvement, student leadership, uh, things like that. Um, if you used uh, eight of your experiences and they're all research, they do kind of start to uh, kind of blend together. So it might be better to um, uh, lump rather than split. Yeah. And there is a small description box for each one. Like you mentioned, your most impactful ones, you'll have a much longer length to be able to describe those. But even for the less impactful that you're still going to include on your experiences, how much detail or what are you usually looking for as you're reading through those that can really highlight, you know, the, the type of experience that the student is, is listing? Uh, I think that level of involvement is really important. ERAS um, uh, has an hours per week column that you can include in some of your experiences. And we're really looking uh, to see how the applicant is really involved in that. Was it was it a peripheral involvement or were they the leader of the project? Uh, did they lead a team in accomplishing something? Really how, how much they actually did for that experience. Yeah. One other thing, too, so at least when I was applying, ERAS used to have this hobbies and activities section, which weirdly enough actually was the one thing that people, I think, read the most. And that's where you could list your gardening or your dancing or, you know, kind of things that weren't maybe as professionally related, but still important to who you are as a person. But I've heard that that box has since disappeared on the application this year. So my question is then, if you do have those experiences and they do are important to you personally, should you include them in the experiences section or not? Yeah, that, that was something that was new to me this year, too. I think a lot of faculty that interview uh, like to use the hobbies and interests as a kind of conversation starter during the interviews. Um, it helps to kind of open up a window into what people do outside of work. So I would encourage people to probably use one of the or two of the experiences sections to kind of highlight something that uh, maybe outside of what you do in your day-to-day -day work. Now, it's probably a conversation starter. You'll probably get asked about that more frequently during the interview than maybe anything else on your application. Uh, so make sure it's important to you and you can talk about it a little bit if you get asked. Yeah, I think I was known as the Irish dancer at literally every program <laughs> that I went to. So I think it's important. And like you mentioned, it was a really great conversation starter. Last thing is just, uh, you know, you've crafted this beautiful application. You've been very thoughtful about what experiences to include and now it's time to actually send it to programs. And there's a ton of programs out there. Um, but of course, that you could apply to all of them, but that's very costly. So how do you coach students into finding programs and selecting programs and kind of keeping that list as sort of a, a controlled um, number, like what programs they should apply to? Yeah, uh, I think mentorship uh, at your own institution with both faculty and surgery residents uh, is really important. They can have uh, some good conversations with you about your overall competitiveness for different types of programs, uh, but make sure you get uh, several different people's opinion on that. 
Um, if you're really looking for information about programs in general, the program websites are probably the best place to go. Um, if you're looking for a list of programs that are currently accepting residents, uh, Frida, which is put on by the American Medical Association, is a good place to go. Uh, Doximity does have a long list of programs, which you, uh, typically have a link to the website uh, of the residency program. Double uh, AMC has a careers in medicine website. If you're still trying to figure out maybe which specialty you want to go into, they have some really good kind of interactive uh, workbooks you could do to figure out what, what you want to go into. And then overall, it's, it's kind of having uh, lots of different people look in your list um, and uh, kind of honing it down to a reasonable number uh, that makes you both competitive but doesn't uh, uh, you know, break the bank when it comes to applying every single program uh, in the nation. I think you brought up a good point showing people your list. I always felt like that was taboo for some reason, like, oh, I didn't want to show my home program director, even our home chair, my, the list of programs I was applying to. But actually, it was my home institution. It was the chair of surgery who was like, oh, you should apply to Michigan because wasn't actually as a Floridian wasn't on the top of my list. And uh, so it, they can give you a lot of helpful suggestions. And you never know what you might actually enjoy and where you might wind up. This obviously this question is going to be a little personal to each person, but in general, about how many programs should applicants be looking to apply to in order to be successful in the match? Yeah, I think this is a great question, and you're absolutely right. It's very different uh, for different applicants, uh, both with the competitiveness of their application and the type of programs that they're applying to. And then there's other things that play into it. Are, is there a geographic restriction uh, that you have that you can only apply to programs in this particular area of the country? Um, couples matching can add an additional layer of complexity there. But I generally counsel uh, medical students to work as a backwards math problem. You need to match at least one program. In order to match at one program, you have to have a certain number of interviews to really increase the chance you're going to match into the specialty of general surgery or whatever specialty you're going into. There is data out there that the NMRP sends out every year, um, and the the numbers that they send out routinely is there's about a 95% chance that you'll match if you interview at 12 or more programs. Uh, as you decrease the number of uh, programs that you've interviewed at, it also decreases the number of uh, programs you could put on your match list. And as you move down, the, the overall chance of matching does decrease incrementally over time. So the kind of magic number is about 12 to maybe 13 interviews, uh, which allows you to rank that many on your, on your rank list, and the majority of people will be successful in that. In order to get those 12 interviews, how many programs you apply to, you'll hear a wide range. Uh, I think most applicants these days are applying to anywhere from uh, 30 to about 50 programs, uh, but certainly some apply to many more than that. Uh, some apply uh, less than that, just depending on their competitiveness and the, and all the other factors. It's a, it's a tricky tricky estimate, um, so ask your mentors as well. They should be able to help you out with that. Yeah, I think having a mentor, too, that you can be super honest with those step scores and GPA and class ranks and really take a, a solid look at your application is super important. So someone you trust to kind of really take a good look at your application. Um, anything else that you wanted to add about this year's process that you're considering, especially as a program director? Um, yeah, I, I think it's important for the virtual interviews that uh, applicants do a lot of the homework before the interview day. Try to get a sense of, of what, what the program culture is like. Uh, try to get a sense about how that program is slightly different than another program that you uh, interviewed uh, had before. 
Uh, make sure you take the time to do any of those social events or events where you can just uh, interact with the residents and the faculty on a more informal basis. Uh, those are the ones that really give you a flavor of the program, uh, which is really hard to do uh, through the Zoom and through just the information they have on their website. So that that, that would be my biggest biggest uh, point of advice to make sure you get that good fit um, before you make a rank list. Yeah, and I know that this was a big concern or it has been a big concern for several years, but now we're two, three classes into kind of virtual interviews. And at least, I mean, I can only speak for our program, but it seems like even virtually people, we still get a good feel of people. I think they still get a good feel for us. And We've had good matches so far. So, um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Hughes. I think that's all the time we have for this episode. But be sure to check out our other Dominate the Match episodes, which we'll also have linked in the show notes, where, again, we'll cover, we've covered personal statements, letters of recommendation, interview tips, ranking, everything you need to absolutely dominate this residency application cycle. Thanks again, Dr. Hughes, for helping our medical students get ready for the 2024 application cycle. And until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Highland. We're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com.